From everything financial, welcome to episode 14 of the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. I'm your host, John Abbott, once again, joined by Peter Sashecki, president of Everything Financial. And we have an exciting episode coming up for you because this is the Ask Peter episode, so to speak. We Every week or every episode, we get to open the inbox and take a look and see what's there. We've compiled some of the best emails uh, coming to us from uh, your money at everythingfinancial.com. That's your money at everythingfinancial.com. That is the email account to reach Peter and have your question asked, like we will get to today. I know this is one of your favorite uh, episodes to do, Peter, because you're reaching the listeners and the viewers of this podcast directly. I do. I like these episodes, John. It uh, gives a chance to see what real people want to know, getting answers to their financial questions, RSP questions, all the different investment questions we have. So this takes the pressure off them having to call, but at least we can get their answers because if one person is asking this question, there's a whole bunch more that are wanting to know the answer to the same question. And you have your platforms. Uh, You're on the radio, you are on television, and of course we have this podcast platform as well. So we want to thank everybody for uh, watching and listening to you Monday to Friday and then checking out the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. Uh, We've been through 13 episodes already. We really appreciate everyone that's listened to it and viewed it uh, you can go to our youtube channel as well to to subscribe to that and we appreciate any kind of feedback both uh liking subscribing and reviewing our podcast all right let's dive right into the mailbag then uh peter again it's the ask peter episode here on the your money personal finance podcast so question number one comes from a listener it says my daughter is 25 she has a decent job making about 50k a year Renting an apartment, putting a little bit of money away into a TSFA, but haven't been able to convince her to take a real financial plan with a professional. What have you found uh, as to be successful when trying to convince young adults to take their personal finances seriously and uh, they have advantages to start early in life? How do you navigate them uh, to that point where they will actually seek help to get organized as a starting point? Great question, John. And we have that one a lot. And and the best way to get your kids to look at financial planning and, and get the ball rolling on financial planning is for you to do it yourself and introduce them to a registered financial planner that you have a relationship with. And, and maybe they won't want to deal with that person because that's where mom and dad go, but at least it gets them talking about it. And that's the key is talking about it around the house, giving them examples don't, in, in my opinion, anyways, don't lecture your kids or tell them, hey, you're making this much now, you need to look at doing an RSP or you need to look at a TFSA. Because I have a lot of clients who've done that say to the kids, well, you need an RSP, you've got to get started on RSP. This one at $50,000 of income is kind of borderline. Do you do RSP? Do you do TFSA? Because they're almost at that lowest tax bracket. A little bit of RSP wouldn't hurt at this point for that person, but not too much. Um, So take them to the professional and have the professional give them some education. Now, an example with us at Everything Financial, we have a couple of our associate advisors who are um, quite younger. We're mentoring them. They're newer into the business. They've gone through schooling. And those are the people we tend to let deal with the, the younger people because they see eye to eye. They have common interests. Um, and it allows the younger people to kind of have their guard down a bit and they're willing to listen because it's someone their age. Another thing that's great, John, is a lot of the portfolio management companies we use now have great online tools, and that's key. The, 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 the younger people 
can do an investment, but they can they can track it on their phone. They can see what the investment's doing. They can run different scenarios on their phone. Well, if I do this and I make this, what's it going to be worth? So ease them into it. And there's no amount of money to put on deposit that's too little. Um, you know, it starts with something. It starts with 50 bucks a month, whatever the case may be, just to get them going. But teaching them about the value of a dollar and compound interest. And, and if they just don't know what they want to do, a TFSA is always better than an RSP because at least you have the freedom to take it out without any tax consequences, but it's better than putting the money in the bank and earning that much these days because you're earning pretty much nothing if it's sitting in a bank account. Well, and I like, so the example is a 25 year old, uh, that's the listener that emailed in asking about uh, the 25 year old daughter. I think one thing you continue to remind all of the listeners and viewers is that it's never too early to have a financial plan to start investing, um, even if it's minimal at the beginning. And, you know, that's probably good advice to double down on and repeat here, Peter, because, all right, you might be uh, with it together, a pre-planned 25-year-old that knows you have to a lot different uh, finances for things to come, but you might be a 25-year-old that's not looking any further than a year ahead. But eventually you're going to get there when you start investing into a home or an apartment or a condo. Uh, what not if you're not into it already. And, and then you're going to look back and think, oh, I wish I would have uh, had more of a plan together. Absolutely. And, and that plan doesn't have to be, it's a financial plan is not a retirement plan. And, and you hit the nail on the head there. The plan can be something as simple as the 25 year old saving for a trip a year and a half down the road when they, when they want to go take time off, or maybe they're doing their master's at school and they go, I want to save, and I, but they're also working and they go, I want to save for a big trip when I'm done before I really get into the full-time working world. A finan- all a financial plan has to be, it, it, and you can be very simplistic at the beginning, is having one goal. One goal that that 25-year-old wants to save for, it's not necessarily a full plan, but it doesn't have to be a full plan. That can just be the start of a plan, getting them in the habit of saying, here's a goal, here's what I need, and here's how much I have to put away to get to that goal. So they can see that target, that light at the end of the rainbow kind of thing, and they can go, okay, this is how I'm going to get to that point where I can use this money for whatever. And, And the worst thing that could happen is they save a bunch of money and the goal may change and they have that money for something else. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It just gets them in the habit of going, oh. This much of my paycheck is gone every month and it's put somewhere for something else. And that, and that will get them in the proper habits of saving money. You have the Omni formula at Everything Financial and your services. Everyone and anyone can always use a GPS, guidance, performance, you, and strategies. So you bet. You bet. <laughs> you bet. And there's no, there's no minimum. We, we're not like the, the pompous banks who go, if you don't have this, we're not going to talk to you. Any amount of money is a good place to start, as I said, even if it's 50 bucks a month to get you on your way. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're starting somewhere. Uh, Speaking of starting somewhere, that's uh, the first one in this episode's edition of Ask Peter with the mailbag. Again, these are questions submitted to us uh, through 13 episodes at yourmoneyateverythingfinancial.com. Let's get to question number two, Peter, and it's dealing with reverse mortgages. Mortgages. Again, I know it seems to be a hot topic right now, uh, kind of going into and uh, currently uh, in, in the pandemic. I was almost going to say coming out of, but we're not there yet. Um, 
you've talked about reverse mortgages in prior episodes. You hear and see advertising for this alternative lending all the time. I understand they're not for everyone, but what would be the good reason to use this kind of lending? Is there a common financial situation where they make sense? And if so, what is it? Well, that's the last resort lending on your personal residence would be the reverse mortgage just because of there's fees involved and the fees are not, I mean, they're not crazy, but they're not good either. There's all, it's also a reverse mortgage. If you look at the posted rates, they are higher than say doing a home equity line of credit, short form HELOC. That would be, if you want to get money out of your personal residence, that would be the version I would go first. But Getting a new mortgage on your house doesn't work because that's a really inexpensive rate right now. HELOC doesn't work. And HELOC gives you about the most amount of freedom because you could choose to just pay interest only, invest the money. And with interest rates being so low, even an investment at, say, 5% return is going to give you a lot of surplus every month. And then the last resort, if you can't qualify for any of those or they don't work, then you're looking at the reverse mortgage as the last option because you just have to get um, some income, some equity out of your house. There are some pitfalls with the reverse mortgage, one being the fees, um, two being the, the rates. And though the reverse mortgage companies go, our rates aren't that bad. Well, I just looked at them before we filmed this episode. The posting of those rates are percent to percent and a half higher than the home equity line of credit. Um, so they're definitely higher rates. And the, the real, I mean, reverse mortgage company is not going to make you sell your house or they're not going to take your house away from you. It's your house. But if, if and, they're, and they're banking on the value of your house increasing. But what if we go through a, a real major correction in the market and that house doesn't increase in value, it actually decreases. They can't make you sell your house, but you lose some of the flexibility because there would be less equity in your house and less equity in your house means less freedom on what to do. So they're not for everyone. They're definitely the last resort. The commissions you have to pay on those are quite high. Uh, last one I looked at before we went on here was 2% versus a line of credit. So the banks will put you in a reverse mortgage first if all else fails before a line of credit because the commission on a line of credit is 025 to 0.35% reverse mortgages, 2%. So think which way they want to go. So not for any, everyone, not for most, but there are um, situations where they have to be used again as a last resort to get you equity. We can do reverse mortgages at Everything Financial, but um, we've never done one. We're licensed to, we can do them. Uh, the gentleman we've had on previous episodes, Vitri Trong, who's our associate advisor, but also a mortgage broker, License to do them, but it's it's really really the last resort. And again, because of fees, commissions, higher rates of return, less flexibility for you. And remember, as we talk about this, what do we call it? Your money, which I believe in. It's your money. So you, when you're borrowing money from yourself or pulling out equity, you want to get the most flexible item you can that's going to help you and your family the most. And the reverse mortgage is the least flexible and going to help you the least. But as we said, as a last resort, you may have to do it. And, and not that that's a bad thing if you have to go that way. Just make sure you exhaust all the other um, possibilities first 
and you really look at all the fees. And that's what our episodes are always about, educating yourself, know all the fees, the pitfalls, the pros and cons before you make a financial decision. That's really what it's all about. And that's part of today's process as well in episode 14, uh, kind of expanding your financial literacy and knowing what to expect from certainly the group at Everything Financial. A president of Everything Financial is Peter Sashecki, and you can find him at everythingfinancial.com along uh, now with the home of Everything Mortgages, as you kind of alluded to there. And that's where our next question goes in the Ask Peter mailbag on this episode. How do mortgages, how do mortgage brokers rather get paid? I heard an ad on the radio, says this listener. Uh, that their service is free, that can't be right. Someone must be paying them. You would think so, right? Because I don't know about you, but I think people don't work for free as a rule because if they do, they probably end up, you know, starving in a very short period of time. Um, They get paid commissions. Mortgage brokers get paid commissions. Sometimes from some companies, they have bonus structures. They have um, extra incentives if if they're contracted to one company. Just to put more mortgages through, they have they have contests, they have quotas, so they don't free. Not, there's nothing free. Um, there's nothing free. Some are played. Some mortgage brokers for proprietary companies are salary plus bonuses. They're still getting paid. So when someone says the fee is free, it's it's not free. There's built-in fees. A lot of in some cases with some types of lending you pay the fee when you close the deal at the end. So when the deal matures with some of these type of equity mortgage loans, there's a large fee at the end. Some mortgages have um, an increased rate. So they'll get you in the door looking at one rate, but if you're not a first time buyer or you're, you're buying, you're you're borrowing over a certain amount of money, they won't give you that rate. You get the lower rate. So, there's a surcharge in there. And, so, and mortgage brokers won't give you the best rate off the bat. They'll give you um, a rate, but that rate's padded. So they're getting a little bit of an extra commission in there in some cases, not all cases. And you have to fight to get the lower rate. So is there anything in life really, especially when you're talking finances and your livelihood, do you really want the free one or do you want someone who takes the job seriously and it's their livelihood and and if they get paid so be it but my big thing is long as everyone discloses what they're getting paid that's the key um and that's what you should know about mortgages is the same thing and and the best way i mean i'm biased on this but the best way i see to do a mortgage is from your registered financial planner and him or her's firm because a mortgage, that's one of your biggest purchases you're ever going to make. Well, mortgages continue to be a hot topic, and especially in the middle of this pandemic, Peter. Uh, so we'll remind everybody that you are the home of Everything Mortgages as well. Everythingfinancial.com, the, the place to uh, find your all-encompassing advice. And lots of that to go around today on episode 14 of the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. As we get into the Ask Peter mailbag, uh, let's go to another question from a subscriber here. I've, I've heard there are low interest credit cards and low fee bank accounts available, but the banks don't promote them and you have to specifically ask for them. What do you know about both? Well, let's start, John, with the low fee or no fee bank accounts. There's online bank accounts from major banks, virtual banks that 
Um, the banks don't have brick, brick and mortar. They're just online banks. Whereas one in particular, there's a few of them, but $1,000 left on deposit allows you to have no fees, no ATM fees, no withdrawal fees, no statement fees. There are zero fees with $1,000 left on deposit and you actually get interest. You're still getting like 0.15%. I know the interest isn't great, but it's a savings account. No check fees, no nothing. So, and, and there's other ones where you don't even have to have that much on deposit, but you might not get any interest either. But you should look for those online. They're not promoted by your major banks because the big five banks are getting paid off of fees, off commissions. They don't want to tell you about the stuff that truly is free. That's not the way they're making money. So send us an email and we'll give you the name of a couple companies where you could just use banking for your day-to-day, -day, you know, put and take account, you're paying your bills, et cetera. So imagine having a bank account, you have a little bit of money in it. You can pay all your bills online from that. You can use it as an ATM if you need money and you're going to pay no transaction fees at all and make a tiny bit of interest just to have your savings account there. The credit cards, you've got to watch these, but they can come in handy. Some of these no fee, um, no interest credit cards, they do have, or, or very low interest, sometimes like 0.99% or 1% or something like that. But a lot of times those are for terms, like six months, nine months, one year. You have to look at that. And a lot of them are based on debt consolidation. So you transfer your money from one credit card X to credit card Y that's got the the 1% interest for the next six months. Read the fine print though, because if you don't have the balance paid off by that period of time, that card can become horrendous on how much interest they're charging you. So again, educate yourself, read the fine print. But if you're really good at paying one of these things down, having that no interest or extremely low interest credit card can be really good for a six month term to pay something off and just get rid of some debt um, if it works for you. So look at the rates, but don't get caught not paying on one of these things because it will be expensive. Saved a bunch of fees thanks to you. So, hey, there's a nice uh, listener feedback to, to receive. My question is, how did the financial literacy of most people get to be so poor, especially when it's so important? How would you recommend it gets fixed? Does a, does a credit card and a loan um, work need to be taught in high school? So this is kind of a loaded question a little bit. I think, Peter, I don't know if uh, this person's speaking for the masses, but I would agree that uh, more people, including myself, need to continue to learn about uh, some of the topics that you cover. And I would absolutely recommend uh, that post-secondary education or even secondary school education get more involved. Uh, would you agree on some of those? I'd agree 100%, John. And a great question, though, by the listener, because the one thing I hear from clients and those who bring their kids around is they say they learn nothing in school about this stuff. There's no education these days. And I'm a little, well, well, I'm a lot past high school, I can tell you that. But um, we used to take some consumer courses in high school way back in the day, last century, dating myself here. Um, but um, but nowadays, I'm told the kids are learning nothing in school. So again, that's where the parent can introduce them to someone who can start to educate, educate them. There's lots of great online reading materials to learn about financial stuff. Just start the simple stuff. Start educating yourself. Go on the internet and learn what is the true definition of an RSP. 
a TFSA, read about simple interest, compound interest mortgages. Start with those. And I think we've heard this question a few times now. So I think what we're going to do um, at Everything Financial in the next few months is we're going to post some of the most common questions from young people on our website and give the little question and answer section. Because I think this is a great question. How do you learn this stuff if you want to learn it? And you've just got to go out and ask questions. And we do have some clients who um, their kids, and I say kids because they're early 20s, a lot of them going to school still or just coming out of school, have come in to ask questions and learn about this stuff. Again, it's up to the parents because it's not being taught in school. And heck, in the last year, 2020 to 2021 here with COVID, it's, I don't even know if kids are going to school half the time anymore because so many people I talk to, their kids aren't going to school. So it's hard enough to learn. It's probably even harder if you're not going to school because everything's online. So nothing in high school that I know of, and, and a listener, a teacher out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but the common thread I hear from everyone is there is nothing. So go online, ask the questions, attend the meetings with your parents to the registered financial planner and start to learn this stuff. There is some good colleges, though, if you want to get into this career in financial planning, there are some good college programs that at least give you the education to have the, the designations you need to get started. And then you just have to go out and find someone to hire you. And, and that's what we do at Everything Financial. We mentor people who have the education, but don't have the experience. So we're always bringing on every you know year, roughly a new associate advisor to teach about this stuff so they can pass on those, that knowledge to people their own age. And that's, that's kind of the only way it works right now. You mentioned uh, seeing a registered financial planner and, of course, uh, maybe the easiest time to book an appointment with uh, you or someone at your team and everything financial is right now when uh, you can do what we're doing, uh, meeting over Zoom and uh, do things virtually so you don't have to necessarily commit to making a trip to somewhere. That would be a great opportunity to pick your brain and to touch base with somebody at your team and everything financial. Certainly, you've laid out a lot of uh, good advice through the episodes. We're at episode 14 here. But what would be the difference uh, between going to your team and everything financial for advice at the beginning stages and sitting down with somebody at a bank? Because I think there's still um, quite a few young people that assume, okay, I have financial questions. I need financial answers from a bank. But that might not be the way to go. Well, different. do you want someone who's a commission-based salesperson selling a product? Or do you want someone who's, you know, received salary, like our associate advisors, and someone who's solution-based? Looking for someone who's trying to teach you about your money as opposed to sell you a product because it's part of their quota this month or this week. That's the big difference. And that's why people get frustrated and fed up with the banks because it's a numbers game. We've actually brought on um, staff from a bank before. Why did we bring on someone from a bank? Because they were just disillusioned and fed up working for a bank because they were hired to do financial planning. And then we're sat in a corner and said, okay, this is how much you need to sell. This is how much you need to bring in. This is what you need to do. It, they give a lot of lip service to financial planning. They do a lot of um, really good commercials, except why are we getting so many clients inquiring and everything financial who are coming from banks? Because they said, we've been there long enough and we just don't get a plan. 
And, and you don't always need a full plan right off the bat, but having someone to teach you on why you're putting away this much and how you're going to get to where you need to be and teach you the simple things about the taxes. And you know what boggles my mind the most is when I see someone comes in and they go, well, I have a TFSA. It's the most common one. Yes, the bank set me up with a TFSA. Why are you in a TFSA that's making zero or 0.1%? Makes absolutely no sense. Tax-free savings account. First off, the government named it wrong. I think they did that on purpose to help the banks. My conspiracy theory for the day. <laughs> You're not paying any interest on the profit you earn. So do you want to just earn so little that there's almost no tax anyways? Again, at 0.15% or invest that daily savings, make a good rate of return so you're actually saving money. So if you're unsure, start with a TFSA, look at something that's a year or two out before you'll need it, get some consultation from your registered financial planner, learn about the TFSA and start from there and you'll be better off for it and you'll have some savings at the end of the day. Ah, I like that point of advice because, uh, again, we're here to help as many people as possible. Uh, we thank you for listening, viewing, and subscribing to the Your Money Personal Finance podcast. And that one rings true. I think there's just so many people uh, that needed to hear that, Peter. So I appreciate your answer on that one. With Peter Sashecki, president from Everything Financial, I saw this is the next question, Peter. I saw Canadians have some of the highest per capita household debt among developed nations. And when interest rates finally do go up, as they're expected to, a whole lot of people are going to be screwed. <laughs> How much debt is healthy to have? And what point do you recommend seeing an insolvency company to, to help them out uh, doing a consumer proposal or declaring bankruptcy? And uh, I, I hate having to even read that, but that is part of the reality of the time we're going through as well, Peter. Yeah, so here's a simple way to do it. Well, first off, I'll go to mortgages. When, when they're getting approved for a mortgage, the mortgage brokers are basing your approval on 2% more than the going five-year rate, like it's padded, something to that effect anyways. But when I'm doing planning for people, so the question really is from this person is how much is healthy, how much is too much? So let's just keep this for today's sake real simple. Take your interest rate, so taking all your debt and imagine an interest-only payment and then double that. That'll take you a long way for interest rates going up. If doubling that payment would put you, would the listeners say, would, would cause you to be screwed and, um, and look at insolvency, bankruptcy, consumer proposal, whatever the case may be, then you've got too much debt. If you can't handle your debt, if, if all those payments were, were doubled, you've got a problem. So you first off, you have to have an emergency fund. Save three months income, put aside just in case. Something in savings. And that, that, that savings can be the TFSA. Just something put aside that you can access. Or access to a very low interest line of credit. Something you can get for emergencies. That's the key. Um, here's another thing which I think fits into this, John. But let's see. When you're purchasing something, and this is the way things are sold, look at it this way. Don't ask what the monthly payment is on what you're purchasing. Find out what the total dollar is on what you're purchasing. Because stuff out there is being sold to you. Well, it's only 
$259 a week to buy this car or $79 a week to buy this 80-inch television, what, you know, the examples, whatever the case may be. I said, don't buy things that way. Buy things on how much it's actually costing you. What's the total price? So if the, the car is $30,000, I don't know, $35,000, instead of saying, what are the payments per month or per week or biweekly or whatever the case may be, how much is that car really going to cost me over the next five years? Interest and everything included. That's how you start purchasing things. And make sure you can always put 15, 20% of your pay every month in savings for an emergency fund or retirement or something. I mean, you have to be able to put away that you what you can afford. But if you're spending so much money on servicing debt, you can't even afford to you and your spouse or partner, significant other, to go out on, as they say, date night once a week and have fun. I know that's long gone for you, John, with three kids, but you know, <laughs> it doesn't even exist. But if you can't even do that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can't even do that, then you've got too much debt you're trying to maintain. So those are just some of the simple things to try and simplify your life. And John, stop with the date nights because now you have three kids. We don't want to, you don't want to have a fourth one already. <laughs> Three for three. Uh, <laughs> move to the next question. This is an interesting one because we actually haven't spent a ton of time on this topic. Um, and boy, is there a whole lot of uh, boys are a whole lot of information and misinformation out there on cryptocurrencies. Peter, uh, are they here to stay? This listener asks. And there's so many out there. It's hard to know which ones are relevant. Uh, that's to be sure. Is it smart to have some of your savings outside of the traditional equities at this point, or is it too big of a risk? Great question. Too big of a risk, in my opinion. Um, there's nothing wrong with cryptocurrencies at this point from what we see, except put money into anything that's highly speculative. You put money in that you can afford to lose. Remember the old days before covid if you want to throw away some money, you got to go to this place down south called Las Vegas and throw it all on black or in a slot machine, go to a few shows, have some laughs, take your spouse, go for a few nice dinners. Remember those old days? We don't have those anymore. But if you're going to throw away money, potentially, or risk money, have some fun with it and do a trip like that. So that's my point on cryptocurrencies is... Build a base first, build a financial plan so your long-term future, your debts are looked after. You're not trying to hit the home run, the baseball analogy here, because remember, we do a lot of stuff on sports, you and I, you know, nothing wrong with a long stretch of singles to get you home. I said, but when you try and hit a home run, a lot of those big hitters, you're trying to hit home runs, strike out. You don't want that to happen with your savings in a cryptocurrency. There's nothing wrong with building a sound plan and then putting some money to cryptocurrency. But cryptocurrency, a lot of time is like any other stock. Once you hear about it, oh, this is great. You should grab this. Look what it's, it's done this. It's done huge numbers. Yeah, you missed out. It's too late by then. You know, like, like we talk about one of our favorite things, the Canucks. Why didn't they draft so-and-so? Look how he's done. Why? Yeah, it took four years for so-and-so to, to hit that home run. Yeah, hindsight is great, isn't it? I mean, as we've talked about on the radio before, yeah, but eight other teams passed up on the same guy. So it's not the only one. Cryptocurrencies all look great when they've gone up. What are you going to do when they all go in the toilet? 
And that's what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket. Remember way back when the 90s was amazing stock. A ton of people made a ton of money on it. I think it was called Briex. They even did a movie about it with gold with Matthew McConaughey, which was based on that. A lot of people made a ton of money, but a lot of people who got in late at the end lost a fortune when they found that it was fraud. And I'm not saying cryptocurrencies are going to be fraud, but there's a lot of stuff that's not regulated. And again, you don't bet on anything that you're unsure of more than you can afford to lose. And here's a, here's a, good, a good one for you. When you're watching one of the business channels on TV, and the person sitting behind the desk says, you need to buy this. It's, a, it's great. It says, put your money into this, buy this stock. Yeah, yeah, as we found out before, the person sitting behind that desk is the one trying to unload that stock. So the whole point is build a, a very sound, well-diversified plan first. It's got a lot of security to help you reach your goals. And if you make some good money off something, yeah, then as we say, Throw a bunch down on black and see what happens. Maybe you'll hit a home run. Well, and cryptocurrencies, as intriguing as they may be, I think you're, a good point made by you is that there's still so many unknowns, Peter. And uh, it, it really hasn't translated into that everyday type of um, financial stability or, uh, or reliability that people have thought it would. Uh, yeah. so maybe that day's coming, but right now, Certainly looks like we're a ways away, even if it gets there. Uh, let's continue along with our Ask Peter uh, episode number 14 here at Your Money, a personal finance podcast. You can reach us uh, by uh, that email address once again as, you, as we dive into your money at everythingfinancial.com. That's the place to reach us each and every episode, but we're compiling questions this time around. So let's go back in there. This listener says, I've got a good job but I don't really see a way to save enough money to buy a home uh, in the lower mainland. Of course, we're uh, largely speaking to our British Columbia uh, listenership. What are the first time home buyer programs uh, pluses and minuses long-term? And I've heard that mortgage insurance you have to uh, pay makes them not worthwhile, especially when interest rates go up. So again, another pointed good question from this listener, because anybody that is in the market for the first time, I think you just get glued to any kind of savings you can acquire uh, to be able to allow you to reinvest it elsewhere when purchasing a home. But um, good questions here as, it, as it's concerned. So mortgage insurance and first time home buyers plan. Well, let's go her first time home buyers plan. And we'll try and simplify this question because I think I know what the listener is getting at here, but we'll try and help them out. If not, they can email us back. First time home buyers plan, which allows you to use $35,000 of money you have in an RSP to put toward your deposit on for a first time home buyer. The problem is, or not really a problem, but what you have to be aware of is you have to pay back starting the, the next year, you get a kind of a year's grace, but you have to start to pay back that money you've borrowed out of your RSP. So you've got your mortgage payment, plus you've got a payback of that RSP money and it's divided by 15, so you get 15 years. So let's just say, for simplicity of math, you take $30,000 out of your RSP to put towards that first time home purchase as your down payment. That's part of your down payment. But you take your mortgage payments, and then you gotta add on $2,000 a year that you also, based on that example, that you also have to put towards an RSP. 
So that's a big extra burden on money you have to spend and come up with. Also, if you're in a fairly medium to medium high tax bracket, say you normally put in $4,000 a year to RSPs. Well, the first $2,000 goes towards that home buyer's repayment. You get no tax break on it. It's like income, that home buyer's money. So the home buyer's thing is there with the RSPs. I'm just not a huge fan of it because it does tend to sometimes make people overspend. Now, if you have to do it, you have to do it. But it does make people overspend sometimes. And, and I'm going to tie this right into the second half of that question about the insurance. Now, there's two types of mortgage insurance, but I think this is where the listener is going. There's mortgage life insurance that if you pass away, the mortgage is paid for. But I think what the listener is asking here is the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation insurance. So if you don't put 20% down on your home, since we are talking first-time buyers here, there's an insurance premium. CMHC is one of them. There's a few others there. So basically, you're getting an amount of money packed onto your mortgage. That's the insurance premium that you never get that money. You never get it back, but it does add on to your payment. So that can cause you to overspend or cause your payments to be a little bit high. And you know what? Sometimes it might just be worth waiting for that purchase. And we had a listener, I think one of our last podcasts or, or last shows on TSN who said, buying a home is not the be all and end all. And I agree with that listener. Um, they said, we, they're in their thirties. They've never bought. Instead, though, they did take the money they would use to save for a down payment and they put it towards long-term savings. In the early 30s, they had over $300,000 put away, but they figured I'd rather take the growth on that money and do some traveling because the rent I'm paying is very reasonable. And what does happen sometimes from a, a crowded market like we have in Vancouver or the, well, the whole lower mainland because of the prices you can sometimes get a lot of good deals on rent. So maybe buying and the risk and everything else that goes along with it, some of these extra costs may not be for you, but if it's not for you, the key is put that money somewhere so you at least have it for later on. Spending it all on just finding no long-term savings doesn't make sense because if that's the case, you might as well pay some of these fees and put it into a house anyways. So again, make the, your registered financial planner part of your first time home purchase so you can look at the big picture, not just with your realtor on buy this and maybe you overspend just because you qualify for a certain amount of mortgage doesn't really mean you should necessarily buy that much of a mortgage. Sometimes having a little room, as we call it, room for error, a little safety net isn't a bad thing. So buying right up to limit you're approved for isn't good. That relates to one of the questions we had earlier in the show here, John, is causing you to get into debt and bankruptcy problem. If you overpurchase and interest rates go way up, maybe that'll be the person you're talking to next is our friends at Sands and Associates. And we don't wish that on anyone. And trust me, Blair Manton at Sands and Associates would probably go, I really hope I don't have to see any of your clients either. You know what? He's there to help. But I mean, again, there's a last resort and kind of a, a thing you don't want to have to go through. Well, it's a topic again that I like that we're headed in this direction because it leads to our next question, which might be the final one of this episode 14, but 
I think people banked on being able to get into a first time uh, home ownership or property or, uh, you know, even a, a townhome condo doesn't have to be that big house coming out of the pandemic, so to speak, or once things stabilized, thinking maybe rates would go down, maybe prices would go down. Instead, for the most part, Peter, they have not. In fact, it's become even more of a seller's market yet again, even through this time that we're in. So that gets us to this question again. I think it's going to be the last one, but you can, we'll uh, throw the email up before we're done here. You can always reach us uh, that way. I'm debating selling my home and renting. If I sold now, I'd end up with about $1 million I could invest in retirement savings. That's a good number. My debate is whether the Metro Vancouver housing market will go up faster than what I could reasonably expect with my investments. So sticking in uh, the investment chain here, uh, what math should I be using to calculate average expected growth investment returns? My goal would be to live off the growth and never have to touch the principal. My worries is that the government gets rid of the current capital gains exemptions for your principal residents and that interest rates go up and there's significant housing corrections. So to speed that wow. one up, trying to sell the house to invest, but worried about using that big amount from the house to invest and if it's going to pay off or not. Well, look at, look at to be conservative, look at what 5% will earn you on that investment a year to never touch the principal. Look at it that way to be safe. And if that's going to give you enough money to pay your bills, enjoy your retirement, then why go purchase a place? Because you can be purchasing a place can make you at this point in retirement can make you asset rich, cash poor. So this, it's a really loaded, long question, but a good one. Um, but it all ba- it's all based on how much do you need? And I know a lot of people who've just said, you know what? They don't want to own a place in retirement. And it's funny, in, in one case, the, the kids got all mad at them. Well, how can you not own a place? And you're paying someone else's mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You had a house for free. And before I jumped in, the dad jumped in and said, house for free, taxes, maintenance, upkeep, insurance, utilities. And they went on and on and listed everything. And by the time the dad was finished, he said, we're at 2,700 bucks a month. He said, we're renting a place for 1850 all in. He said, that's $600 more in our pocket and our investment. In this case, the investment was about 1.5. He said, not only do we have enough money off the investment to pay the rent, we have a big chunk of extra money in our pockets to go travel. And, and he says, it's a rental unit. We have a problem. We close the door. We take off for three or four months. Who cares? No responsibility. Um, on average, real estate does go up about 5% a year. If you go way back when that's a normal rate of return. I mean, you talk sometimes to not all a few real estate people, they make you think it goes up 20 or 30% a year. It's not realistic. And you can use a, a lower mainland example. And I'll use the, I don't live in Coquitlam, but I'm going to use the Coquitlam area as an example. I had some clients who sold some houses for big bucks in 2015 in certain areas in Coquitlam, really big bucks. The houses still aren't at that same price again. They've actually gone down. Now they're going back up, but they're kind of just getting there. Well, that's, you know, five and a half years later, almost six, they're not even there. So they peak, they go down, they peak, they go down. And it depends on the price range you're in too. So you've got to look at your overall plan. Um, Don't worry about the capital gains correction on your personal residence. 
and the government tapping into that to pay some of this COVID-19 debt. If the government goes to that where they're going to start taxing the capital gains on your principal residence, you can pretty well bet there's going to be some sort of window where you can freeze the dollar figure. Um, so create without getting too taxi. I think that's our next episode, but you can create an you can create an adjusted cost base to go. Um, here's my new cost of my residence at this point um, to give you a window to say, hey, am I going to sell it or am I going to do this with it at some point? But long story short, use 5%, use that growth to be safe. That's not saying you want to invest and only make 5%. That's again, planning for worst case scenario where everything over and above 5% is a bonus. That is all the time we have for the listener questions, even though there's a few more uh, holdovers. But as we always do, we survey the inbox each and every episode we'll compile them we'll get to them either on an episode by episode basis or we'll designate an entire one just to provide answers advice and feedback as peter has done so kindly today we uh, i love these ones we're able to really connect with uh, the listeners that have uh, dug into your advice and either want further questions or have feedback of their own your money at everythingfinancial.com is the email uh, to continue to reach out to peter and he can direct uh his own response through the podcast or even uh, direct you to one of his associates. Uh, the way to reach you, Peter, with your team at Everything Financial, Everything Mortgages as well, the best way to reach you is virtually these days. Is that correct? That's correct. We're doing probably almost all meetings are done by Zoom. You can go to www.everythingfinancial.com, click on one of the email addresses there, um, just email us and we'll set up a meeting and get you introduced to the Omni Formula. And then if it's the right fit for you, we'll move forward and start working on a plan for you. Or just, as you said, email us with questions. You don't have to be a client to have us answer questions. We'll answer questions for anybody. That's what we're there for. That's why the podcast and the TSN and the CTV shows were all started because it's educating people first because no one else is educating people. And we want to teach you to ask those questions to your financial advisors that you ever even never even knew you were supposed to ask because you know what? If we help inform you and you feel better about what you're doing, at least you're doing something, and that's a good thing. This is the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. Like, subscribe, review, including our channel on YouTube. Uh, this is a lot of fun today, Peter, as it always is. Thanks for connecting with some of the listeners, and uh, we'll look forward to Episode 15, talking some taxes. 